Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. In the beginning, Brian Ansel, Richard Hallowell, and Rick Priestley created Warhammer, and they saw that it was... Well, maybe not so much good since several more editions and multiple revisions would follow, but yeah, let's say they saw that it was good. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show, it's GJ, and today we are going to take our long-expected first look at the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battles. Now, if you have already seen the preview on Patreon, you know that this first edition box came with three different rule books one with the general rules on on how to fight battles uh, one with the rules for magic and one with the rules for characters knowing myself i will probably take way too long discussing everything so what i'm going to do is i'm going to break it up in this episode i'm only going to focus on volume one tabletop battles and in the next episode in this series, we'll take a look at magic and probably also characters. However, before we are going to dive deep into the history of the game of fantasy battles, let's first take a look at news and hobby. I don't really need a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing and it was everything that I thought it could be. We've got some news to cover because we've had some reveals from last week's Adepticon. Sadly, we did not get any Warhammer the Old World news, but there are some things that have been put up on the Warhammer community page that we can maybe use for the Old World. And the first thing that comes to mind is something that I mentioned on the show before, which is the Gondor terrain set, or sets I should probably say. They've got a, a mansion, a tower, and a two-story ruins that will be on pre-release um, pre-release sale somewhere this week. I have no idea yet as to what these prizes are going to be, but I think that this terrain can very well be used for Warhammer Fantasy as well. Especially if you are taking a look at the miniatures from older editions when skill creep was not that big of a thing yet. Now, speaking of Adepticon, we've had a few reveals there that have to do with 40k. Apparently we get a new edition of 40k. And apparently some people care about that, but well, I am not one of those people, I've never played 40k and I don't really expect I ever will, although I'm definitely open to it, it's not something that I'm actively pursuing. So I'm going to focus on the things that we can use for fantasy. Maybe, a very slight maybe, you can use some of the Beastman miniatures that come with the new boxed game. Although you'd also have a lot of miniatures that are of no use in Warhammer Fantasy. And those Beastmen still have 40k details like grenades and stuff like that. So 
yeah, it, it would take a little bit of conversion and there will also be some beastmen for fantasy that you can probably use better if you're after those. Now, I think the biggest reveal is that we got some Cities of Sigmar miniatures. Uh, Cities of Sigmar, as you probably know, is the Warhammer Age of Sigmar equivalent of several old world factions. Uh, the Empire, High Elves, Dark Elves, Wood Elves and Dwarves. Uh, the miniatures that were still available on the website, that are still available on the website, were all grouped in into that specific uh, faction. So you could have a Wood Elf Noble and a High Elf uh, uh, Phoenix Guard and uh, some, uh, uh, what was that, the, uh, the Empire Flagellants and then the State Troops were still there, I believe, and uh, some, of the, uh, some of the Dwarves and uh, um, the Dark Elf uh, Dark Riders. So all of them belonged to the same faction and they just called them Cities of Sigmar. Now we see our first look, uh, we get a first look at three distinct human uh, models. I was going to say characters, but I don't think these are characters. These appear to be regular troopers. They are armed and armored in a unique way. A way that maybe is done to set Cities of Sigma apart from the upcoming Warhammer the Old World. It might also be that these miniatures are going to double as both Age of Sigmar and Warhammer Fantasy or Warhammer the Old World. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure how I feel about that if that would be the case. Because these new Cities of Sigmar miniatures, um, they have a quite different aesthetic from the old Empire miniatures. Uh, the Empire miniatures, they had the puffy sleeves and the puffy trousers. Uh, these are much more heavily armored. They've got some some cloth and, uh, and uh, decorations over their armor. The shields are mostly angular. Um, it's, it's like, uh, well, if you draw a house as a kid, uh, 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 a base with two straight up sides and then a pointy roof on top of that and you turn it upside down then you have the basic shape of the Age of Sigmar shields here. Um, so yeah there, there's some Sigmar symbology there there's, uh, there's a hammer uh, surrounded by antlers on the shield I guess these are transfers I'm, I'm pretty sure that they are probably transfers um, there's also a guy holding a warhammer uh, with a, I think what appears to be a bone painted on there. You get some skull imagery there. So, um, a little bit of, of callbacks to the Empire. But what you see here on this Warhammer community page is not only the models, but also a look at what appears to be several shield designs. So, what you have on those shields is uh, you have these these upside down house shaped shields and on them there is a, a square area that you can put a transfer or a decoration or, or um, an emblem or something on there. Uh, it, it, well it is a square but the square is tilted so that it's on its point and it matches the uh, 
Um, the point of the upside down roof of the house shield. So uh, looking at this collage of all these different uh, tilted squares, you see some imagery that reminds you of different things from Warhammer Fantasy. There's for example at the very bottom a shield that has a gate, a portcullis, and that reminds me of the uh, dwarf symbology. Uh, this shield, uh, the, the portcullis is surrounded by some branches in a sort of S-shaped pattern, which is more wood elfy. There are things like hammers and spears on there. There are some tree designs. There is a skull with a uh, raven on top of it, which uh, with, with purple color scheme looks a bit more dark elfy. There's a shield design that's got a kite shape on it with a heart that more resembles the old high elf shields. So you do see where they are coming from. And yeah, it, it bothers me a little bit that these are maybe going to be used for Warhammer Fantasy because their mixture of symbology doesn't really scream Empire. And uh, there's also uh, an S shape there. The uh, big central shield's got the S, which I guess stands for Sigmar. At least one of the guys also has the S on his armor. If you, for example, want to have these guys as Empire miniatures, and you want them to come from, say, uh, why can't I think of the name, Middenheim, then the Cult of Sigmar in Middenheim is not very prominent, the Cult of Ulrich is much more prominent, so you don't want that Sigmar symbology there, at least I do not want that Sigmar symbology there for my uh, Middenheim st state troops and characters. So yeah, there's um, some mixed feelings about these for me. This will probably also mean that within a short while, relative short while, probably a couple of months, we will see a revamp of the Cities of Sigma range. So if there is something in that range of the old models, like the, uh, the, the available models for the Dark Elves, Dwarves, Empire, uh, what else did I mention? Wood Elves. I believe there was one more. High Elves? I don't think I mentioned High Elves. So, so one of those five factions, if, if there are some models there that you are still looking to get and that you've been putting off, then I suggest you probably uh, should uh, close that deal really soon because the, this, these new miniatures will probably mean that the old ones are going to disappear. And the same is going to be true for the Lizardmen, because we've also got an article now about the full might and majesty of the Seraphon revealed. Uh, Seraphon is what uh, the, the kids nowadays call Lizardmen. We get in this preview some Saurus cavalry, uh, Saurus on cold ones. The Sauruses look rather mean, and the cold ones. They're probably not called cold ones anymore. They're called uh, what are they called? Agrodons. Um, but yeah, um, what can I say about them? They 
They've got feathers on their tails, so that matches the aesthetic for the uh, skink gold one cavalry, the skinks on the raptors. They've also got those uh, pointy claws on their toes that you get from the Jurassic Park raptors, uh, very uh, familiar, I guess, to most people. Their heads for the sauruses, for the uh, cold ones, I should say, I I'm going to keep calling them cold ones, they look a bit out of place. They look more like the heads for a, for example, a lizard than an actual dinosaur. So um, this is more of the type of head that you would expect on a, uh, maybe an iguana or a, or, or a different kind of lizard. Um, not so much on a velociraptor. So yeah, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence of those, but well, maybe I'm just getting old and I don't like chains. You've also then got some character models riding the same kind of beasties. Um, these will probably be also a... You've got a... What is this called? Uh, oh, let me see real quick. No, this might still be the plastic one. So you, you first, uh, on the website first you get a, a reel with three pictures of a command group. Um, and then you get a few more pictures, which are, I believe, also of these same models. And then, only then, you go to the Scar Veteran on Agrodon, which is a separate model. Uh, it looks rather cool. It's got a cool pose. It's bent forward a little bit, tail pointing up in the air. Uh, the mouth is open. It makes it look a little bit more dinosaur-y and a little bit less lizardy. Uh, the Scar Veterans got a uh, very stern look, um, painted in a white skin tone, and the Saurus is painted in, in red. Uh, the cold one, I should say, is painted in red. So, yeah, that's uh, the paint scheme's nice. Um, this, this might probably be a model that you, uh, if you don't mind the feathers, uh, that you could get for your Lizardman army if you're still looking for a Saurus on. All, on um, uh, no, not Old Blood, not Gwanosaur. Oh, I'm getting these ma names mixed up. So, the Saurus on Cold One, uh, the Saurus here on Cold One, if you don't have that, if you want it, you can get it. This one's also got a, a sort of uh, stone saddle with a banner on top of it, which you could probably use as a mounted battle standard bearer if there is such a thing in Lizardman and you would like to use that. Uh, then we get some uh, a look at the new Croxigors. I believe we've seen some of these already. Um, this is definitely more of a throwback to the 5th edition style Croxigore, not the skinny 6th edition ones. Although they are also rather different, with some overlapping scales that are sticking out on the back of the model, some more uh, scaly bits and horns uh, sticking out of them. The weapons are different. Um, yeah, I, I I don't dislike these models. I think I have enough Croxigore as it is, so I'm not in a hurry to buy these. But yeah, they could definitely be used in the uh, regular Warhammer setting. Uh, then you also get the Croxigore Warspawns. Uh, these are, I believe, more or less the same models, at least the same basic model. Except that these have a much more crocodile-like head and slightly different weapons, I think. Uh, probably they are the same set, but don't 
quote me on that because I do see some differences here. Now I think these uh, the, the no these have to be the same. The bodies are the same, and then you've got some different weapon options and head options. Basically, what you get here. And uh, they are going to release an army set, which will give you the new slan, uh, not Lord Croak with the uh, all the wheels around the throne, but uh, the regular slan. Uh, you get, let me count here real quick, uh, these are 5, no, 10 of the skinks on the smaller raptors. And you also get about a dozen source warriors, um, with, uh, which is probably just a single sprue with different weapon options. So yeah, that and they get a battle tome and then uh, you get some, some uh, more pictures of the host with all the different models there in the background the stegodon is still there the stegodon is going to remain and i also see in the background the uh troglodon i believe i don't think we already saw that one pop up um just to be sure i i know i was uh, i still wanted the uh, skin on troglodon um so I just got that set, I, I bought it right before starting the recording, um, just because I don't want it to go away and then I have to pay eBay prices for them. Uh, this is something that I've been putting off for a long time. So yeah, same as with the Empire miniatures or the Cities of Sigma miniatures, we don't know yet what's going to remain. Um, so if there is something that you have wanted for a while, then grab a chance and get it while you still can. Alright, that's it for the reveals. Now let's look at a little bit more of a personal hobby bit. I've been painting some evenings and I've been mostly working on my minotaurs. I have finished not all of the minotaurs that I had base coated, but I think I have 16 of them now, um, and I had 27 planned, so there's 11 more, two more groups. Uh, these are the metal ones, I saved them for last because they are the 6th edition ones, fifth, I believe, I believe mostly 6th edition ones. Um, they, they are a little bit simpler, and uh, I think they are more fun to paint, going to be more fun to paint than the more elaborate 3D prints and 8th edition plastics that I have been painting so far. I think it's also the nostalgia speaking because these were the first Minotaur models that I encountered. I'm probably not going to be finishing them for March, but I will then post them in April with the uh, For the Call of the Crown challenge then. Uh, I've also been working on my ogre, my pirate man-eater. I still have a mulligan for my ogre, so I'm not too concerned if I don't finish him. But I would like to finish him and then uh, see how it goes next month. And then the last miniature for the ogres I'm going to paint for that part of the challenge is going to be Grease's gold tooth. So, um, yeah, all in all, I think, at least for me, for what I can say for now... The Call of the Crown challenge has been a major success and a lot of people have expressed their uh, their gratitude to me organizing it. This is not just me patting myself on the back. Uh, this is just um it, it's 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 humbling. That's what I want to 
convey with this uh, that apparently this challenge has been something that a lot of people wanted or needed in their lives and I've been uh, very happy and blessed to be able to to organize this and to to give it to people. Uh, so yeah, we still got two full months to go before the end of the Call of the Crown challenge. And already we have people asking about a next edition. Now I don't know if I'm going to be the one that's going to do a uh, edition 3 for this challenge. I did not do the first edition. So maybe somebody else will pick up the torch. Uh, I don't know yet what's going to happen there. We'll just see how it goes. Speaking of painting challenges, we of course have our very own Wargames Orchard Painting Challenge. The theme for March is Pirates. We already have two entries, one by Jim Bob, a one-eyed Carl, a blunderbuss expert and a former Stir River Patrolman. And uh, Bruce Sigrist, who is also rather loyal with posting up his pictures for these challenges. He's got a dwarf pirate, Yagrog Lootsmacker. Uh, some say he is undead or that his obsession with artifacts mutated him into the Dawizar. That's the Chaos Dwarf for all you elf players out there. Uh, nobody gets close enough to ask. What we do know is you don't want to anger his parrot Watcha, whose enemies crumble from an assault of sarcastic taunts. Definitely my kind of guy. Lovely miniature too. I've been trying to figure out what miniature that is. It looks a little bit like the Sartosa pirate captain, but it's also rather different. So yeah, I'm going to have to ask Bruce what he used there for the basis of his miniature. Um, I mentioned the pirate man-eater. That's not going to be my entry for this month. I have painted a uh, zombie pirate of course, because that's that's sort of become my thing here. And I still have to put some flock on his base. But before the end of the month, I will have him up here. And I have also already uploaded the theme for April. And April's theme is going to be April Fools. So anything silly or a tricksy or uh, something to do with a fool or a jester. I know there's a goblin jester miniature you've got uh, i believe it's called jules the jester the miniature that came with uh the, the troubadour the bretonian troubadour whose name escapes me uh, tristan tristan the troubadour of course because these names alliterate so uh yeah anything that's got something to do with uh, jokes with practical jokes with fools with uh, doing foolish things um that's going to be your assignment for April. Other than that, we have also had some activity here on the Warhammer Orchard group. And this activity is mostly thanks to uh, Jim Bob. Jim Bob sent me a message the other day asking me if he was allowed to post some pictures of a game that he had, which was a mashup between... Warlords of Erewhon, I'm not sure if that's the correct way to pronounce it, uh, and Warhammer Fantasy. Um, this was, uh, um, the acronym he used was uh, Wohammer, W, uh, capital W, and then a small letter O, and then a capital E, 
for Warlords of Erewhon and then Hammer for Warhammer, of course. Uh, he he played some games with these rules. Uh, I see here the uh, well, a lot of Warhammer miniatures. I see the old uh, castle, the plastic castle. I see a lovely siege tower, a lot of orcs rushing against the uh, castle there. Also some other games uh, with... Um, and let's see, uh, I've got here some orcs on the run for a, uh, is that Carl Franz on a Griffon? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, the, the plastic 8th edition Carl Franz on the Griffon. Uh, some Empire Knights over there charging at what seem to be reading glasses. Empire Pistoliers. Lovely painted miniatures, by the way. I don't know if these are Jim Bob's or his friend uh, Dan Keenan's, whom he played with, but yeah, those are the photos. Go check them out in the Warhammer Orchard Facebook group. So, I think that's going to be it for this week for news and hobby. I did do a little bit more hobby related things. And that is that I made a small introductionary video for the books that we are going to discuss in this episode and the next in this series. The first edition Warhammer Fantasy books. I sat down and made a little video of me going through the books. Well, mainly just, you just see my hands and the books. Um, and I put that up on the Patreon page. So if you would like to get an overview, uh, it is sort of an unboxing, but not quite, because I don't have a box. And I've already glanced at these books before. But if you want to see my my first impression and a little bit of an overview of what's in these books, then please go join our Patreon. Uh, our Patreon is non-tiered, which means that you can join for basically any amount uh, for as little as one dollar or euro or pound or the local equivalency um, per month. That's a monthly fee. Or as much as you like. And there you will find a lot of bonus content. Some uh, bonus content from earlier months. And I'm also going to try to, when I make this series. Uh, and if this, this is something that you guys like, of course. I'm going to try to do some more of these first impression videos. Uh, I can do them for first, second and third edition. But not so much for later editions because I am more familiar with them although we can still do a video and take a look at the books that have been released. So without further ado let's jump into our time machine. The year is 1983. Thriller by Michael Jackson is the number one hit for most of the year. David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear and the Nobel Prize in Literature was awarded to Lord of the Flies author William Golding.
And of course, the reason we all came back in time to 1983, the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy was released. I have here in front of me the first book, Volume 1, Tabletop Battles of Warhammer, the mass combat fantasy role-playing game. Now, if you are not familiar with these books, they were printed in black and white only. You get no color there. The Cover art is by John Blanche, at least uh, the cover art on the box. And the illustrations in the books are by Tony Ackland. And like I said in the intro to the show, the books, the text were written, uh, text of the books was written by Richard Hallowell, Brian Ansel, and Rick Priestley, who in 1983 still went by the name Richard Priestley. Now, book one of the Warhammer Fantasy uh, First Edition Mass Combat Battles, I keep mixing up these words, gives us a an overview of how to play the game. We start with a little bit of an introduction and then we go on about movement and the turn sequence, psychology. Uh, then we cover the rules for shooting and combat and then there are some general guidelines for playing tabletop battles and fighting in dungeons. Because Warhammer 1st edition was very much a combination between what would later be a tabletop game and a, uh, a dungeon crawler game like uh, Dungeons and Dragons for example. That's my go-to example. If you've seen the video you know that. So, how do you play Warhammer 1st Edition? The first thing that I should say is that I was surprised to learn how many things that we see here at the very beginning of 1st Edition are also uh, part of the game in later editions, and some of these have stayed all the way up to and including 8th Edition. So I'm not going to read through the entire book, but I will pick out some passages here and there. We start with our introduction, and it says, This booklet is the first volume of the Warhammer Fantasy Wargaming system. It contains rules which can be used to simulate anything from a small skirmish or dungeon adventure to a huge pitched battle. And then it goes on to say what you need. Figures, rulers, dice, model scenery, and once you have mastered the rules, You'll be able to use them in adventures or battles of your own creation. The very first thing that jumps off the pages when I browse through these books is that to cite Pirates of the Caribbean, the rules are more like guidelines. This is just something as a springboard for your own creativity. Uh, every other page the book seems to scream you go and make up your own stuff, do what you like, uh, as long as you have fun. There's a little bit about the notation that's used for dice. That's something that you always get in the beginning of these Warhammer books. That's something that stayed through all the editions. And what's very nice here is that we get a sense of scale. One inch on the table equals one pace, and one pace equals one thousand of a mile. So uh, that would be uh, a little under 6 feet. 5 miles is a league and 1 pace is also 2 meters. So th those scales don't match up exactly because a little under 6 feet is uh, a little bit more under 2 meters. But if you round it up then it is sort of correct I guess. So these measurements and scales help you as a games master 
uh, someone who designs the, the table, the layout, the scenarios to get a sense of scale and to convey the correct proportions on the tabletop. Now, the first thing that we get here in the uh, start of the rules is the turn sequence. A game of Warhammer consists of uh, an active player and a passive player. Um, well, it doesn't even say that you have two players here. You can have, I guess, more than two players. Uh, it just says that the game prog progresses by each player taking a turn in a strict rotation. During his turn, a player is referred to as the active player. Flip a coin or something to see who has the first turn. Um, this is also something that's, that, that you will see a lot in these first editions. Uh, just do something like this. Uh, just... Uh, Approach it in this way. No definite rules on how to do it exactly. Uh, flip a coin or something. Well, maybe I don't like you and I'm going to flip the table. And then I get the first turn. Uh, I don't think that's what the rules meant. But yeah, in, in later editions, uh, the rules got a lot more legalistic. And the uh, loopholes were closed a lot more. So each turn, if you are the active player... Uh, consists of the following sequences. First you get the movement phase and the active player in the movement phase may move any of the figures that he wishes but none of the other players may. Then you get the shooting phase and in the shooting phase all of the players may shoot with any ranged weapon. Then you get the combat phase any opposing troops in base contact fight with each other so if you're already in combat you fight even if it's not your turn then as something that's new to anybody who played only the later edition of Warhammer you get the second movement phase and the active player may now move any of his troops again as long as they didn't fight in the combat phase but in this phase you may not move closer than four inches within enemy uh, closer than within four inches of enemy troops um, this is the reserve part so you're bringing up your reserves then you get the magic phase, the active player may cast and implement spells. And finally you get the route phase, and in the route phase you determine um, basically who's going to flee and pursue. Uh, it gives you some examples on how this works. So for example a bowman may move in the first movement phase and shoot in the shooting phase and move in the second movement phase. Uh, or if you are armed with a sword you can move twice unless you are fighting then you can't move in the second movement phase these rules it goes on to say have been designed to use with citadel model miniatures and the details of the armor and the models uh, provide most of the information necessary so it's basically what you see is what you get and then um, it goes on with some specific information about that. Uh, troops may at any time use any of the weapons depicted on their model. So the visual aspect is very important here. Then we get into the first phase called movement. In the movement phase you may move the following distances. You may move in any direction. Um, in movement phase 1 and in movement phase 2 you may both move up to your full move allowance. And gives you some examples of how troops move. Halflings, they move 3 inches unless they are armored, then they only move 2. Uh, orcs and humans, uh, 4 inches and 3 respectively. 
The dwarves move three and a half inches regardless of whether they are armored or not. And an elf moves four and a half inches except when he's armored then he moves four inches. You can also have some uh, mounts here. Horses move eight inches, wolves nine inches and boars seven inches. And that's something that has stayed consistent throughout the editions or at least in the later editions. Then you get some rules for difficult ground. What is difficult ground? Um, what can you do? Difficult ground is half your movement. Crossing obstacles. What are obstacles? Also half your movement. Uh, you get some rules for charging. Charging is the only way to get into hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's also something that stayed the same throughout the editions. And you may only charge in the first movement phase. Now what's different here is that if you are charged as a passive player you may declare a counter charge. So unless you are, for example, uh, an infantry unit charged by cavalry, then you cannot do this. Or if you're charged by flyers, then you also cannot do this. But if you are charged by as, as infantry uh, by infantry or as cavalry by cavalry, you may counter charge. And what happens then is that the troops meet in the middle and the charger loses his um, charge bonus. Also, some other reactions you can also uh, run away your standard flee reaction, and there's also a stand and shoot reaction, which is not covered in this section but it will be covered in shooting. It goes on to talk a little bit about how you can move your units, it discusses wheeling and turning. This is all stayed the same, and uh, they make a difference here distinction between uh, intelligent and stupid units, such as trolls. Uh, when it comes to expanding your frontage. And that's something that was, especially in the Hero Hammer era, and a little bit also in 6th edition, there were rules for that. But then it died out in later editions, because I guess it wasn't used enough. Um, so yeah, if you have uh, intelligent troops, then you may expand or contract your front uh, your formation uh, with up to 4 models per move. So that's per point of movement, I guess. And um, this might may be done whilst moving and incurs no penalty. And if you are stationary, then this rate may be doubled. Except if you are stupid, then you first must test and then you may expand up to two models per rank per move. And there's also some rules about interpenetration. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit dirty but basically what it means is units cannot move through each other unless you are a friendly unit of skirmishers moving through a different friendly unit of skirmishers. Then we get into the psychology section. Hate, fear, terror, frenzy and morale. Now I will not go into detail in the psychology section because I just did that a couple of weeks ago I discussed uh, morale, which would later be panic on the main podcast, and the other types of psychology I discussed on the Patreon page. Now I do wish to point out that when you look at the rules for terror, you see a barbarian with this, this viking helmet type, the, the Hollywood viking helmet with the, the horns protruding from the sides, round shield, uh, his mouth wide open, he's screaming because a spider is dropping down in front of his eyes. And this is not a giant spider, well it's a big spider but I don't think it's very big by say Australian standards. Um, as an arachnophobe I totally get his reaction. But I do like it that they put a picture of a 
big scary dude who is basically afraid of a tiny little regular house spider. So uh, yeah, these uh, these pictures they really complement the books, and like I said, they are all in black and white. Uh, pen drawings, I guess they are. Maybe I, I'm not too familiar with the the methods of drawing, but um, yeah, you, you basically get shading by putting in more lines next to each other. So I guess that would be something like that. Uh, you get a big section on morale, on uh, the panic, what co what affects your panic, and how does that work? And then we get into shooting. During the shooting phase, the active player may shoot with any of his missile-armed troops. Um, this is something that contradicts what was said earlier, because in the earlier section it said that all players could do that. Maybe this the active player goes first and then the other players go. Um, but I don't really see that mentioned here. So, what you get is that... Uh, the first thing you get is a chart with missile weapons. And there you see some things that have also remained the same basically throughout the editions. You get different kinds of short bows. They have a short range of 0 to 8 inches and a long range of 8 to 16 inches. Uh, it's no longer short... It, or no longer. It's not yet. Short range is half of long range. It is in most cases, except for... Some of the more exotic weapons like a sh sling, javelin, uh, dart, throwing axe, things like that. Um, improvised weapons, then you get some deviations there. Uh, also something, as, uh, as an aside here, is that there are a lot of spelling errors in these books. Um, this is something that bothers me as an editor. I, I see these errors, I can't do anything about it. But there are inconsistencies in spelling, there are missing spaces, there are, uh, for example here, Javelin is spelled uh, J-A-V-A instead of J-A-V-E-L-I-N. So, um, yes, sometimes there's a, a period missing at the end of the sentence, sometimes there isn't. Uh, it's, it's very inconsistent and this just gets under my skin. So, that's just a little pet peeve of mine. Um... Right, let's get into the rules a bit more. The different missile weapons, they are given an attack strength. And the attack strength is a number, but the number is also followed by a word. For example, improvised weapons are, have an attack strength of 1 and they are weak. Uh, your short bows and, and infantry bows, they have an attack strength of 2, which is normal. Long bows have an attack strength of 3, which is strong. And elf bows and crossbows have an attack strength of 4, which is mighty. And if you go to the next page, then you will see there's also a level 5 powerful and 6 irresistible. Um, and these are not mentioned in the table uh, with the missile weapons, but they do apply to larger sized weapons like siege weapons and cannons. Not only do you get these names next to the numbers for the bows, you also get that for the bow skill level. And we will see it will also happen for um, some of the other stats. So the bow skill level, what later would be the ballistic skill, you get a number between 1 and 10. Uh, 1 is inexperienced, 2 is poor, 3 is normal, 
and then you get uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, which is in order proficient, adept, skillful, accomplished, and expert. And nine and ten is both master. It gives you a score needed to hit, and this is basically the same table that it always was. Uh, your ballistic skill uh, is so, sorry. Now let me rephrase that. Uh, the score needed to hit is 7 minus your ballistic skill. So if you have a ballistic skill of 4, you need 3s to hit. You get some modifiers, and these modifiers are also mostly the same as they are in later editions. Plus 1 for a large target, minus 1 firing from a moving mount. You do not get a minus 1 moving when shoot, uh, shooting when moving, when walking. Uh, you do get a minus 1 if the fire is wounded. That's a definitely a role-playing thing that you don't see in later editions, uh, at least not in the um, post-Oldhammer editions. Uh, minus 1 when you're firing at a skirmishers, minus 1 against soft cover, minus 1 when throwing improvised weapons, minus 1 firing at long range, and minus 2 firing at hard cover. And then when you have determined if your shots hit, you go to the um, you compare the strength of the missile to the toughness of the target. And the target has a toughness grade, which is a letter from A to F. Uh, a is small, weak creatures such as halflings and lesser goblins. B is average creatures such as men, elves and goblins. And lesser goblins, I guess, would be something like snotlings in later editions. And goblins are just goblins. C is large-ish creatures, orcs, tough creatures such as dwarfs. D is trolls and small giants, large scaly monsters. E is giants and medium-sized scaly monsters. And F is dragons and other very large monsters. There is not a one-to-one -one comparison between these letters and the um, later uh, number system for toughness. If you do make a comparison, then I should say start with A equals 2, and then uh, B equals 3, and then you move up the scale. It's not one-on-one. -on -one. Some of these things differ or are placed in in different categories in later editions. Uh, but that's, that's sort of how it goes. So if you then compare the uh, strength of the missile versus the toughness grade of the target... There is certainly no consistent uh, if this then this which you would get with later editions when you compare the uh, weapon skill or the uh, strength versus toughness. But there are there is a little bit of a method to the madness. So for example if you have a strength of 1 and you go against toughness A then you need a 4 plus if you go against toughness b or c it's a 5 d or e is a 6 and an f is no chance or no effect and if you have for example a strength of 6 then uh, if you go against a b c or d you get an automatic kill against e you get a kill on a 3 plus and against f on a 4 plus now sometimes you have to roll a 2 plus to hit in the case of um strength 4 or 5. If you have an average bow and you have strength 3, then you hit A on a 3, B and C on a 4, D and E on a 5, and F on a 6. So there's a little bit of a of a method there where the same letter is repeated twice, uh, the same numbers repeated twice for two letters. 
but not always because the number 2 sometimes appears and sometimes disappears. So when you've done this then you calculate how many wounds you've done. If you get a single kill then uh, the model has only one wound then they are dead and the model is removed. And if you have more than one kill then you can sustain more wounds. But uh, the wounds must be saved by an armor save. The armor save is very similar, it's just a simple d6. If you have a shield or chainmail armor or a metal breastplate, you get a 6. If you have a shield plus a chainmail armor or complete plate armor, you need a 5+. plus. Plate armor plus shield or mythric armor is a 4+. plus. A mythric armor plus shield is a 3. Mounted miniatures may add 1 to the dice, that's been the same throughout editions. And if you have weapons requiring the use of both hands, you cannot gain a saving throw advantage from having shields because they are on the back or they are dropped. So uh, you get an extra one for barding there. So this is basically just what it is in later editions, except that some terms are used here that are not generic terms in later editions. You also get a strength modifier. If you have a strength of 4, it is minus 1 on the armor save, 5 minus 2 and 6 minus 3. So that's also something that has remained the same in later editions. Uh, we get some, some additional rules here about using mounted figures, uh, crossbows which may not move and fire, shooting at individual figures um, if you are in base-to-base -base contact with a unit as a as a character you may not shoot against them even individuals within five inch of a unit may be engaged at short range only and not within five inch of a unit may be engaged normally there are some rules for firing into combat and it says normally this is not allowed uh, but if you do wish to fire into combat then you have to roll to see which unit is hit uh, you just have to divide your shots what you also get in these rule books is that there are some advanced rules and these are in little boxes with a uh, with a picture drawn in them. And the advanced rule for shooting is that you can use critical hits. Missilemen with a bow skill of 4 or better may attempt to score a critical hit. You can only do that if you are within short range of your target and that is the chance of a missile hitting a vital organ and slaying even a large creature. The missileman must first declare that he is using this critical hit rule uh, before any dice are rolled. Then you work out the shot as normal until you come to the kill phase. And for the kill chart you um, consult the kill chart to see what score you need to cause a normal kill. Then you roll 1d6 for each wound that the target can sustain. You will need to score sufficient on each die to kill as normal. If each die shows a score equal to or more than the score required for a single wound kill, then he is dead, otherwise he is unharmed. So, um, you also get this rule in, in this advanced rule in combat, and I, I like this. I think this is something that I would like to see implemented in later editions as well. So how does this work? Let's say you are firing with a strength 4 bow against a um, toughness E target. That has three wounds on his profile. You roll to hit and let's say you hit because you are in short range and you are an elf with a high bow skill. 
uh, then you consult a chart and if you look at the attack strength of 4 and the letter E then you will see you need a 4 plus to kill the target to cause a wound so because this target has three wounds left you pick up three dice and you roll all of them and if all of them are four plus then the target is killed but if only one of them is a three or less then the shot has no effect at all you don't even cause a regular wound uh, you can also do this in combat like i said it is a, a rather lovely rule a sort of killing blow Hail Mary kind of idea. Uh, I, I like that they, they introduced this element here. And I'm curious to see if this is also something that is in 2nd or 3rd edition. Uh, but well, we will have to wait a little bit because the way we're going with this book, we are still a little while away of, of discussing 2nd or 3rd edition of Warhammer Fantasy. The next section is combat, and combat is divided into five sub-phases. First you get the order of attack, and the attack is the highest initiative level strikes first, so no strike first when you charge. Then you roll to hit, then you roll to kill, then you get a saving throw, and finally you get the combat results. And uh, the combat results, they will determine if your unit is forced back and needs to route. So, the initiative, um, there is something here that's also a very nice role-playing element. If you have a model with more than one attack, then each subsequent attack is at one less point of initiative and the models with the same initiative strike at the same time. Uh, so they give you an example here where you have a harpy fighting against a, a man and a dwarf. The harpy has an initiative of four, so he goes first with his first attack. Then the second are the harpy with its second attack and the man with initiative 3 uh, that has its first attack and its only attack. And then finally the dwarf with initiative 2 gets to attack. Um, you roll to hit, you've got your weapon skill level and the weapon skill level also has the, uh, the number here that is uh, that corresponds to a, uh, to a word, to a level. And these are the same as you get with the bow skill. There are some attributes here as well. Uh, for example, inexperienced web skill 1 are untrained and unblooded troops. Uh, poor, many orcs and goblins are poor and unenthusiastic. Level 2. Web skill level of 3, normal men, halflings, some orcs and goblins. Proficient, dwarves, elves, extra ordinary fighting ability and adapt some elves almost heroic and anything of level 6 and 6 to 10 is called heroic so that's something that only heroes have usually now the web skill table is a little bit different as what you expect from later editions of warhammer fantasy you compare your attacker's weapon skill to the opponent's weapon skill the attacker's weapon skill goes from 1 to 10 and the opponent's goes from 1 to 6 and then the last one is uh, 6 plus so um, the formula here, here there is a formula, is that if you roll against uh, an opponent of equal weapon skill, um, at least up to uh, up to skillful up to level six, if you roll against an opponent of equal weapon skill, you have to roll a five. If the weapon skill of your opponent is one point higher, you also have to roll a five. If it's two or three points higher, you have to roll a six, and four or five points higher, you have to roll a seven. 
and a 7 is a, a 6 followed by a 4, an 8 a 6 by a 5, and a 9 a 6 by a 6, which is the same as it is in later editions for shooting. Um, if you fight something with a lower weapon skill, if it's 1 point lower, you hit on a 4, if it's 2 points lower, you hit on a 4, and if it's 3 or 4 points lower, you hit on a 3, and anything lower than that, you hit on a 2. Now if you are for example a uh, master level 10, then anything you hit will be on a 2+. If you are a master level 9, anything you hit that has weapon skill 1, 2 or 3 will be on a 3+, plus. 4 and 5 on a 3+, plus, and 6 plus on a 4+. Plus. So how then uh, can this be fair if you have a... Uh, a high weapon skill against another guy with a high weapon skill and you hit on, on uh, fours or fives anyway. Um, the weapon skill is modified by different actions. If you charged but were not counter charged, you get plus one to your weapon skill. If you're uphill of your opponent, if you're in frenzy, if you're fighting defensively, then you get um, well plus one for uphill and plus two for fighting defensively or frenzy. You also get some negative modifiers if you use more than one weapon at the same time. Um, if you have a weapon in your left hand for each wound suffered and if you have an improvised weapon that all gives you minus one. If you are engaged from the flank or rear you get minus two and if you fear your opponent you get also minus two. Some of these things were later incorporated into combat results, but as we will see here, combat results is just going to be the number of wounds. Now after you've rolled to hit, you roll to kill. This is the same table as with the, uh, with, with the shooting phase. Then you get the saving throw, which is the same as in the shooting phase. Uh, strength modifiers using mounted figures, there's some rules about that. Uh, when fighting cavalry, you work out the hits and kills as normal, make saving throws where appropriate. And remember that mounted figures add 1 to their dice and always uh, have a saving throw of at least 6. And if you have a kill, you remove the entire model, rider and mount. We get a larger section here about weapons and uh, other bonuses. So... Um, not only can you have plus one to your weapon skill, but you can also have plus one to your initiative and your kill. Uh, for example, if you are charging, everything charging gets plus one initiative. Everything counter charging also gets plus one initiative. If you have a lance and you are cavalry and you are charging, you get plus one initiative and plus one kill. So that's plus one to wound. If you have a heavy cutting or crushing weapon, you get plus one kill. If you have uh, an armed monster, you know, if you are an armed monster with strength 4 or more, you get plus 1 kill. If you have a long weapon, you get plus 1 initiative. A light cutting weapon gives you plus 1 initiative and plus 1 to hit. And a heavy cutting or crushing weapon gives you minus 1 initiative and minus 1 to hit against troops in skirmish order. A light crushing weapon, a light cutting weapon minus one to kill against troops in shock order which is uh, i guess just your regular block of troops and then it goes into categories uh, what consists as what weapons um it gives you some some examples so for example uh 
two-handed axes, swords, those are heavy-cutting weapons, so are halberds. Um, uh, two-handed swords, axes, flails, and maces count as up to six foot long. If both sides are using weapons within the same category, no advantage is conferred. So, uh, you get a section then about weapons differentiation and monsters. So, some of these monsters, um, they do not get any modifications because even though they have a light weapon, it's still going to be big. So, um, there's, there's some, some shifts there in the weapon categories for monsters. Uh, there's a little bit about wounds. If you have multiple wound models and you cause multiple wounds, then you first remove an entire model and then carry over excess wounds to the next model and you don't divide the wounds between the models. Uh, that is just the same as it is in later editions as well. And then we get to an interesting section which is combat results. You count the number of wounds and kills on each side and the side which has caused the most has won. If neither size has caused, has caused any wounds or kills, then the combat is a draw and nothing happens. Fight again in the next round. If you lose a round of combat, the troops who lose are pushed back 2 inches. And uh, the other ones, the guys who win, they move along 2 inches, but they may also bend, as it is called here, up to 4 figures around the enemy formation and attack them in the flanks. If the enemy has a rear rank, they may turn the figures against the troops lapping around in this way and thus escaping the minus 2 penalty for being attacked in the flank. But no other figures may turn or move. Um, and uh, you may not move figures from the back ranks any faster than you could normally expand frontage, which is 4 figures per move usually. Troops pushed back three times successively are routed, so you have to do some bookkeeping here. Some troops are especially valiant or cowardly and will route on more or less moves. Orcs and goblins and trolls route after two rounds, elves after four rounds and dwarves you have to beat five rounds in a row before they route. If they route then you break from combat, this is in the final phase, the route phase, and this is basically just going to be flee and pursue. However, you don't roll for this, uh, you just flee your normal movement and you pursue your normal movement. At the moment that the troops turn and flee, the attackers get an extra attack round. And if you uh, pursue and you catch them, you also get a round of attack. So it's not an automatically destroyed in this edition. Uh, you can choose to either hold or pursue, but if you choose to pursue, you will continue pursuing until the routers are out of distance, you are attacked by another enemy, all the routers are destroyed, or you later wish to hold your pursuit, but then you have to roll a 6 on a d6. Now we get a nice little advanced rule here, which is follow on combat. That's an option which for troops with an initiative level of 6 or more. If they win a round of combat, they may uh, attempt to gain a round of follow-on combat. To do that, you roll a d6 and you will need a score of 4 or more. So you got a 50% chance there. If you are successful, you may fight another round of combat immediately. And if you are fighting against something, then you uh, keep fighting against it. If there's nothing there, you can make a 3-inch move to engage a fresh enemy. 
and you can keep doing this until you roll a 1, 2 or 3. Uh, it gives you the advanced rule for critical hits here as well and there's another advanced rule for knocking out. Um, this is also one of those role playing things. If you wish to knock out your opponent and not harm him then you have to um, play the combat at normal when the enemy comes to take his final saving throw the victor may declare he's going for a knockout then you roll a dice on a one to three he is knocked out for three d10 turns on a four to five he's knocked out for five d10 turns and on a six he's killed and it says oops with a lot of o's sorry we get then our section on tabletop battles, which is just basically how are you going to organize this. You put some um, pressed wood uh, plates on your table, you put a cloth over them, you uh, go to your hobby store and you get some hills and buildings and rivers and woods. Um, you uh, can make some things to make them look right in relation with the figures. So, uh, get some railway stuff there. Uh, there's just some tips how to how to get that. Um, Citadel makes some excellent little window pillars and other architectural pieces, including a really ugly gargoyle, uh, so that you can just add to store-bought houses. It says that you can use lichen um, for. It's something that's used by railway modelers and eaten by reindeer in Sweden, so it's very cheap. And you can use it for uh, greenery. It gives you a little bit of a, um, a rundown of what fighting with regiments works like. A regiment is anything from between 5 and 50 figures. It must be of the same sort of troops throughout. So you have a reg regiment of unarmored bowmen, regiment of plate armored knights and anything. You can mix figures with different weapons and armor if you like. But this makes combat much more difficult to work out. So I never do. Um, I don't know who the I is. One of the three writers of course. But yeah if you want to you can do that. And then it goes on to say. And this must I think be one of my favorite quotes from the entire book. Units of between 10 and 24 figures look nicest. Isn't that cute? It's not about what's effective. It's not about what works best in the game. It's about what looks nice. And this is after a section about, yeah, just put a cloth on the table and, and make it look sort of in the same scale, everything. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I like that they, that they did that. That's... Uh, uh, this shows you where the priorities lie in this edition. Uh, you get a section on bases, and uh, that's if you want to rank up your models, you have to put them on bases. They don't come with bases supplied in these eras. So you just have to get some cardboard, and you have to cut out some rectangles. And the rectangles have to be uh, well squares for halflings and lesser goblins of 15 by 15 millimeter. Elves, Dwarves, Goblins, Men and Elves are 20 by 20. Orcs and Hobgoblins 25 by 25. And Cavalry are on 25 by 40 mil bases. If your troops are armed with missile weapons, then they can be skirmishing. Um, to do that, if you are on a square base, you increase the front by 50%. So a 20 millimeter base becomes a 30 millimeter base. 
Um, you can also increase the side if you want to so that they remain square. Uh, skirmishers can move through different to difficult terrain at normal speed minus one inch because of the extra flexibility. So you don't lose half your movement, you just lose one inch there. And uh, if you are on a, um, a cavalry base, then you just add five millimeter to the front for your base for uh, mounted skirmishers. Uh, troops armed primarily with close combat weapons are shock troops. Uh, so yeah, I was right there. I didn't read this section before. Uh, they are allowed smaller bases than normal troops, but are vulnerable to some weapons because they have little room to duck and dodge in ranks. Shock troops may deduct 5mm from their base frontages. So you're just putting halflings then on 1cm square bases. Uh, that's telling you also something about the scale that these models were in. All regiments, all members of a regiment must be in base-to-base -base contact with each other during the game. And if that's not possible, then they must remain as close as possible. They get a section about fighting in dungeons. This is something that ties in really well with the role-playing games. It also says here that many players will already be familiar with dungeoneering using role-playing games. Warhammer can be used in a similar way to produce dungeon adventures or underground conflicts. It gives you some rules about darkness and light. If you have a torch, then you illuminate an area of 4 inch radius. Um, if you do not have that, you then need night vision as explained in the creature list. There are some rules about doors, what consists of a normal door, what can you do, How? what do you need to uh, roll to um, uh, force the door open. There are some rules for Tunnels uh, do not bring cavalry, but horses can be dismounted, something like that. Then you get a section about flying creatures. Flyers can, during the active turn, land, take off, or remain airborne. There's no uh, remain airborne is something like flying high in 4th and 5th edition, but you do not get the aerial combat rules that came with it in that edition. Uh, flyers can land and they can land into combat counting as a charge um, at the beginning of the active player movement phase uh, you can take off and land and if two flyers charge into the same combat then the flyers will fight each other then we get in this book a scenario called the ziggurat of doom in the darkling woods of Dwarf Strangle there stand a most ancient ziggurat. Solitary and forgotten, the crumbling mound passes century upon century undisturbed until the day in question. Upon this day, the day of this adventure, the six dwarfs Sigrun Strong Arm, Sigrat Black Brow, Sigrun Slender Shank, Skeggy Broken Back, Sorgorn Brittlebone, and the leader Thorgrim Brain Dim break the peace of sleeping millennia as they stumble hurriedly into the sunlight of the open glade. Indeed, the dwarves have reason to hurry, for they are fleeing for their very lives away from the forest, away from the goblins whose cries can even now be heard in the glade. This looks like a place to make an end of it, says Thorgrim. We defend this old temple. Right sooner die here with a weapon in my hand than die running with an arrow in my back. 
All the others murmur their agreement in the sullen way of dwarves and the company deploy themselves on the ziggurat ready to meet the onslaught of goblins. Now I'm also going to read out this next section because this tells you how to make the ziggurat. The ziggurat may be represented on your table by books or boxes or even drawn onto a sheet of paper. If you're using books, lay down strips of stiff card representing the ramps, drape a lightweight cloth over the construct and push it well into shape. The ziggurat is surrounded by a glade of and, and dense woods all around. So, um, this is this is definitely something that is uh, not from later editions, especially not seventh or eighth edition, where it is buy these expensive plastic miniatures because these are the exact miniatures you need to represent these features on the table. Here's just nah, just stack up some books, put a little bit of cloth over them, and uh, you're good to go. So uh, in this scenario, one player plays with Thorgrim and the dwarves. Uh, the dwarves, they all have the same profile. They have a move of 3.5, web skill 7, bow skill 4, strength 2, toughness C, 2 wounds, initiative 3, and 2 attacks. They are slightly higher than normal dwarf characteristics because these are noble and heroic dwarves. It is suggested that the player uses such models as are available to him from our range of dwarf warriors. Uh, so please do buy our miniatures then. They should all have at least a mail coat. But they sometimes wear them hidden under other garments. So yeah, just get any dwarf uh, that you want. Uh, two of them have either a crossbow or a bow and a sword or other weapons. Thorgrim is a famous dwarf chieftain and the bearer of the ancient warhammer Fobane. A symbol of his lineage and majesty. His characteristics are even better than his fellows. And Fobane is a magical weapon that has added advantages. Uh, you get a map of the uh, area there with the ziggurat consisting of four layers. Some of these stairs have uh, seem to have broken at some parts and then there's some woods around them. Uh, Thorgrim has got a move of four, web skill eight, bliss, uh, no bow skill four, strength of three, toughness C, three wounds initiative five and three attacks. Uh, he's got a coat of shining mithril which gives him a four plus saving throw or three if he has a shield. And Fobane causes fear and ultimately death against all non-dwarf targets. Each hit must be saved against S4 poison. We haven't covered the rules for poison yet. I'm sure they are in a later book that we are going to cover in uh, more detail in another episode. And uh, it causes fear within 15 inches for all non-dwarf types. It also allows, allows its reader to go in and out of frenzy anytime he wishes. The goblin player is represented by the other player. His objective is to attack and kill as many of the dwarves as he can. He starts off with 3d6 goblins which can enter from any table side in groups as the player wishes. And during the next 3 moves you may receive up to 6 reinforcements per move uh, determined by a d6 at the beginning of each of the active player moves. And then you receive the number of figures indicated. So you get anywhere between uh, 6 and 36 goblins that you have to defeat as dwarves. But the average would be around... Uh, let me calculate this real quick. 21 I believe. Yeah. 6 times 3.5. So uh, 21 goblins versus 6 dwarves. Um... And uh, the dwarf player tells them uh, which where these reinforcements arrive. Uh, this represents the odd goblin getting lost in the chase. 
Goblins have a move or a five or six. Uh, this is because there are some different types of goblins that you can roll. Goblins, red goblins or night goblins, depending on what figures the players have available. The first six goblins world can be hobgoblins, much tougher than ordinary goblins, and the goblin player can have a chieftain, gutnork, bristlenose, with slightly better than average hobgoblin, hobgoblin characteristics. Uh, Gutnark has the move of 5 or 6, weapon skill 5, bow skill 2, strength 2, toughness C, 2 wounds, initiative 3, and 2 attacks. You get some special rules for this scenario. Troops who look for rocks at the beginning of the active player move will find them on the ziggurat. On a throw of 4, 5, or 6 on the d6, rocks may be dropped in the shooting place from higher levels to the troops immediately below. So as a dwarf, you want to climb up and uh, search for rocks, drop them on your opponent's heads. Uh, they will hit on a score of 7 on 2d6, and each hit has a strength of 2. Thorgrim and his companions have time to position themselves where they like on the ziggurat and collect 46 rocks that they can place anywhere they wish. Uh, so that's before the game starts. The defenders may use, uh, may during any move hide behind unbroken masonry, sorry, hide behind broken masonry if they are on a higher level than any missile attacker, and this way count as being behind hard cover. The ziggurat consists of levels, ramps, and broken ramps. Broken ramps may not be ascended, they may be crossed from one side to the other at the same level at half speed. Ramps may be ascended at normal speed, and levels may not be ascended or descended except by ramps. So, um, yeah, you can do some, some nice things over here with uh, where you place those ramps and uh, make it a little bit more difficult or more easy for the goblin player to gain access to the ziggurat. Victory. The goblin leader receives two points for each dwarf slain except Thorgrim who is worth six points and the dwarf player receives one point for each move he survives with at least one dwarf left alive. The winner is the player with the highest number of points after the play ends or after all the dwarves are dead. Using this system, the players can play the scenario twice, swapping rolls over to produce a fair and even score. And then goes on to give you some suggested tactics for this scenario. This sounds like a lot of fun. I definitely do want to try this at some point. Um... Yeah, I I, uh, I have never played any of the Old Hammer editions and I would uh, like to try this. I just need to find someone willing to be an opponent here. Uh, we move into our final section. I'm going to over this, uh, over this all because this is a large section and these are just the creature lists. Uh, they do give you a couple of rules here, including the rule for poison. Poison. Some creatures have poisonous attacks. Uh, hits caused by poisonous attacks must save as normal. Creatures hit by poison must then save against poison or die instantly. Each poisoned hit is saved for separately. The d6 saving throw against poison is one dice per one dice pip per strength grade. So, for instance, if you have a strength grade of one, you have a you need a six to save. 2 requires a 5 or 6, 3 requires a 4, 5 or 6, etc. Models wearing any form of metal armor may add 1 to their die scores. Another rule you get here is regeneration. 
Some creatures are able to regenerate wounds. This is simulated in the following way. When a figure is killed, instead of removing it uh, from the board as normal, turn the model around or place a marker against it. This figure is then regenerating and takes no further part in the combat, though the figure is still moved around with the unit. At the end of each player's active phase, throw a d6 for each regenerating figure on the table, uh, including regenerating figures of all players. On a 1-2, to two, the figure failed to regenerate and the model is dead. On a 3-4, to four, he's still trying to regenerate, try again next move, and on a 5-6, to six, this regeneration is successful and the model uh, can be turned around and continue to fight as normal. There's also a subsection called Animals. Animals are not subject to morale rules, rules for panic. They are affected by fear, terror and hatred where applicable. All animals are subject to stupidity, magical or fantasy animals such as giant rats and giant wolves are regarded as being semi-intelligent and are not subject to stupidity if led or ridden by intelligent troops. We get an index to the lists. Uh, there are five lists here. The first one is men and humanoid monsters. Then you get large humanoid monsters, regular monsters, rare creatures and undead. There are some things here that are, I'm not going to read them all out, but some things that are, um, that have stayed throughout the editions of Warhammer Fantasy. Of course you have men, elves, halflings, dwarves, orcs and goblins. Some things that have disappeared like manfish. Uh, the Balrog, a large humanoid monster. The Centaurs, which have disappeared after 3rd edition, although you do get the Centagross for Chaos. Uh, you get the Jabberwock that made a uh, reappearance in 7th edition as the Jabber Slide, I guess. Uh, winged Panther, Carnivorous Bird, um, Giant Riding Reptile, they got some different names. The were creatures, were tiger, were rat, were wolf, were boar, and were bear. Um, saying this reminds me of the Mel Brooks movie uh, Little Frankenstein, I believe it is, uh, where the uh, Igor, the coach driver, takes somebody up to the castle, and uh, you you hear some wolves howling in the different in, in the distance, and then the the guy in the coach says, "What was that?" And Igor says. Werewolf. And then the guy in the coach says again, Werewolf. And then Igor says, Their wolf. And then he points to another direction, Their castle. Uh, just the kind of dad jokes that uh, definitely appeal to me. So yeah, um, that's going to be it for this introduction to Warhammer Fantasy First Edition. We will dive into the more advanced rules for magic and characters in the next episode um what you get here in this next section is profiles and the profiles are um uh, divided up in the, uh, the things that i read out uh, basically this is your more or less your warhammer fourth through eighth edition profile minus leadership Movement, weapon skill, ballistic skill, bow skill, strength, toughness, wounds, initiative, and attacks. What's notable here is that there are no points values in this book. I don't know if we get them in other books. I don't think so. Um, so yeah, there is there's something here that is missing. And 
I think this will be rectified very soon because I do believe that in Forces of Fantasy, which is like an update to the uh, supplemental update to first edition, uh, there you do get point values for these troops so you can make more even games. Um, but other than that, you can also do what's suggested in the Ziggurat uh, scenario. Just play the game, switch sides and play the game again and see how it goes. Alright, thank you all very much for listening. I really enjoyed doing this uh, this deep dive into Warhammer Fantasy 1st Edition. And I do wish to continue this series for as long as I can manage and as long as you are all interested. I will probably not do an episode like this every week. Uh, not just because we don't have all the rule books and I'm not going to discuss all the army books in great detail but i do want to spend a little bit more time on uh on old hammer because this is something that most players myself included are probably unfamiliar with and then in later editions we can go through the books a little bit faster and uh do I'm not going to discuss all the different rules and profiles and stuff like that uh, and I also want to mention that for this series, I wish to um, look at the not only the rule books and the army books that were released, but also at the White Dwarfs. So I'm going to start with this uh, first edition, and from there on, I'm going to let the White Dwarfs be my guide and see what was released when and which articles were updated. In this era, White Dwarf was mostly a role-playing game booklet uh, dedicated to all kinds of games like uh, Judge Dredd and, and lots of other games that's definitely not an exclusive Warhammer magazine yet. Right, let me know what you think of this episode. Uh, it's been almost an hour and a half. I do thank you once again very much for listening and also for the people who suggested that I do this or at least encouraged me to do this, to, uh, to do this deep dive, this time machine set through the ages. I don't have a time machine jingle that takes us back to 2023. You have to get there by your own means, but I'm sure you can manage. Right, see you next time when we return to 1983, 40 years ago, and take a look at the other two books that came with this Warhammer Fantasy 1st Edition box. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. Know ye now, the time of mortals has come to an end.